have a Bible, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. As you're turning there, I, I want to go back to where we began nearly three months ago on, on this, this season of the Psalms, right? The summer of the Psalms. And in that first sermon on the, the Psalms, I, I said there was three reasons in which I decided to, to take us on this journey uh, together. Who, who here remembers those reasons? That's what I thought. That's why I figured I would start off, off with those. Uh, number one, uh, the Psalms teach us about God. The Psalms teach us about man and, and all of life. Uh, number two, the Psalms connect with us emotionally and in our day and age and in the Baptist tradition, his, uh, specific, specifically, uh, we need to understand emotions. Uh, so I, you'll remember that, that, that those emotions cover things like loneliness, love, awe, sorrow, regret, contrition and discernment, shame, exaltation, marveling, delight. Joy, gladness, fear, excitement, pain, confidence, zeal, gratitude. Right? These, are, these are emotions we as human beings and as children of God, uh, we should be uh, aware of and able to express with the Psalms. And the Psalms do a wonderful job of, of opening it to us. And the third reason why we decided to do this uh, Summer of Psalms series is because uh, the Psalms are inspired by God. Uh, it's, it's God's word for us today. Uh, and we know this because Jesus uh, lived and breathed uh, in the memorization of his psalms. As a matter of fact, Jesus would often say, well, well, don't you know that God said, and then he would then go on to actively quote the psalms. So we want to be uh, familiar with uh, the Bible that Jesus grew up loving, memorizing, meditating upon, and so we should do that as well. And so in 30 seconds, I want to give you a brief overview of how the last three months have went. Uh, we saw in Psalm 1 that there are two ways to live, but only one of those ways involves true life. In Psalm 2, we gazed upon the promise of God to have worldwide victory, thus giving us what we needed to endure persecution in our day. Psalm 130, we experienced the deep hope we have in Christ in the midst of despair. Looking in Psalm 34, we savored in the reality that we need to be a radiant people of God. Using Psalm 73, Pastor Rick pricked us in our hearts with agony, but then resolved that into relying on the Lord. Brother Philip showed us in Psalm 18 the need for singing and praising the God who really is. In Psalm 93, we rested upon the sovereignty of God over all things and committed and resolved to praise him because of it. We concluded from Psalm 49 that we have nowhere to turn except for Christ. And then Pastor Josiah used Psalm 13 to turn our hearts inward, to cry out with the psalmist, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And finally, here in Psalm 51, we realize that apart from God, outside of Christ, we stand condemned, but that with God and in Christ, we stand forgiven. Psalm 51, let's read it together here. It says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, 
I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open up my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Father God, as we consider now the back half of Psalm 51, Lord, I pray that we would uh, be encouraged as David was, as all of Israel was, and as the church for the last 2,000 years have been asking one question, one thing that you would do, and that is create in us a new heart. Father, I pray, Lord, that those outside of Christ this morning, those who would not say that they are followers of Jesus. Lord, I pray that even this morning you would create new hearts in them. This is a work only you can do. And so, Father, we ask that you do it. May we be changed because of this scripture. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So just brief recap of last week where we looked at uh, the first nine verses of this psalm. The the, the first nine verses have one main point. You can see it there in verse 4. At the end of the verse, it says, Justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Remember that this psalm was uh, penned for David uh, after his sin with Bathsheba and his, his, uh, his death penalty that he put upon Uriah, his, her, Bathsheba's husband. And this whole psalm is uh, David coming to the grips of the reality that, that he is sinner. He's a sinner in front of God. And so the main point of the first half of Psalm 51 is that God is righteous in his judgment over David. David realizes himself for who he is here. He realizes that inside of his heart is not continual gladness in God. He finds within himself this wickedness, this depravity, uh, that, that, that he realizes that in and of himself is only wickedness. And in this realization, he then understands that God is not wrong to judge him accordingly. He says, you are are justified in your words, that is, your words of judgment upon me, and you are blameless in your judgment. David realizes that in his position before God, he does not stand a chance. So last week's main point drove us to see three applications from that text. Is number one, we need to see ourselves as we truly are without God. And that we need to understand that there is nothing we can do to clean ourselves up. Therefore, 
we need to fall on the mercy of God. So let's get into verse 10 here. David asked for three things. Verse 10 begins the second half of this psalm. Uh, and with the, in the first half, David acknowledging he's caught in the grip of sin, born in sin, in need of deep cleansing within. And in the second half of the psalm, he moves beyond his earlier requests. Even if God blots out all of his iniquities, even if God simply passes over and says, you know what, I, I forgive you, David, uh, just move on, David realizes his sinful core will cause the same sins to keep happening. And so look what he says in verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. What's David saying here? The heart in the Bible is often referred to as the, the center of the person, right? The seat of all feeling, thinking, and willing, right? Today we might think of it instead of the heart, we may call it the mind or the, the soul. Where we all uh, need to be saying this with David, create in me a clean heart, O God. Creating me a new mind, O oh God. God, give me a, a new being, a new creation. And so when David says a clean heart, David uh, means above all, uh, he wants something to replace what is driving him. He realizes that if he doesn't get a new heart, if something doesn't change, it doesn't matter if God forgives him, he's going to screw up again. He knows himself too well. So therefore he asks, God, create in me a clean heart. Now what's interesting here is he says, create. Create in me. The Hebrew word behind the word create is the same word used in Genesis when God created the world. So he's saying, God, create something brand new in me. He needs something, a complete transformation of the core of his being. Now listen, only God can do something like this. Only God can create new things, this new creation. As a matter of fact, we, what was read this morning is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Centuries later, Paul will write, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away and everything has become new. David's asking God to give him something, which Paul says is actually complete in Christ. That like, when you and I put our faith in Christ, what David is praying for here, creating me a new heart, oh God, that's what we get when we trust Christ. David continues in verse 10 here. He says, put a new and right spirit within me. He's referring here to the action of God's Holy Spirit mentioned in the very next verse. He's asking for a new and right spirit, a, a steadfast spirit, the NIV says. This right spirit implies a, a determination or a disciplined spirit, a spirit that will not so easily be sidetracked by bad news or temptation. Like what David's looking for here in this new and right spirit is something of perseverance, something that won't just fade away uh, as soon as he leaves the church parking lot. In verse 11, David again speaks of God's spirit. Do not cast me away from your presence. This is literally before your face, God. Don't, don't cast me out of, in front of your face and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You see, David realized that to be cast away from God's presence is to have the covenant relationship 
terminated, right? So you remember Adam and Eve in the garden, in God's perfect world, given two commands, right? Uh, Be fruitful and, and multiply. What happened when they screwed up? They were, they were cast out. Cast away from God's presence. There where God walked in the cool of the day. There where God's presence always was. They were cast out. And, and David is saying, don't, don't do that, God. Don't take your spirit from me. Or perhaps David had in mind Saul. Saul who had been king before David. And God rejected Saul because of his sin. In fact, in 1 Samuel 16, 14, it says, The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. In that same chapter, we find about David's anointing. It says this, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward and David in the midst of his lowest point where he sees himself as he truly is he says I don't want to lose that he's pleading here with God don't cast me away don't take your Holy Spirit from me he does not want to be cast away like King Saul or cast out like Adam and Eve he doesn't want God's spirit to be taken from him instead he pleads in verse 12 Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain in me a willing spirit. You see, he wishes to experience again the joy of God's salvation. The joy that comes from forgiveness and renewal and the certainty of knowing that God has saved him. The joy of God's salvation is a powerful stimulus for David for continuing to walk after the Lord. But again, David realizes he can't do this in his own strength. And so he asks God, sustain in me a willing spirit. This has uh, echoes of, of what will come later in history of, of the man who came to Jesus. And he wanted Jesus to, to heal uh, his, 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 his family. And he, says, uh, and the, he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Like he realized that there was something not quite there, like, but he, he, he believed, right? He had the inkling. And so David has the inkling. Right, he's got the understanding that like, if, if God casts him out, if God leaves, even if God forgives his sin, and, and even if God creates in him a new heart, if God is not the one to sustain him, then he will surely fall away again. Notice this is the third time in three verses that David pleads with God for a new spirit. In verse 10, he says, put a new and right spirit within me. In verse 11, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And now in verse 12, sustain in me a willing spirit. It is clear that David is totally convinced of his own inability. So he calls on God to create a clean heart in him and put a new steadfast spirit within him. Not to take his Holy Spirit from him, but instead to sustain him with a willing spirit. Centuries later, Jesus would echo this. When he's speaking to Nicodemus at night in John chapter 3, he said, Truly, truly, I tell you, No one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above, born of the Spirit. So David realizes that. He needs God in all of this. Not only to forgive him, not only to create something new within him, but but, but to sustain him throughout all of his days. And if God, through his Holy Spirit, will put a new, right, and willing spirit within him, 
David then vows to do three things. He's asking God to do three things, three things and now he says, God, uh, I will do these three things for you. First, he promises to teach other sinners about God's way. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Right, David realizes that if he's made brand new, then he will teach other transgressors about God's ways. He knows from experience that God is willing to forgive even the most heinous sins if people ask with a contrite heart. And so he says, God, if you, if you do this, I'm going to tell others about it. And if he teaches transgressors about the merciful God and God's gracious ways, he is certain that they will turn to God. Listen, in, in your evangelism, Christian, which I hope that you actively practice, like, that you're actively telling, God, telling others about the great things Christ has done in your life, that God has done in your life. Listen, there's only one thing that you need to know. You don't need to know a lot of Bible, really. You don't, even, you don't need to know a lot of theology. You don't need to know a lot about church history. You just need to know one thing, fam, and that it is God who will change their hearts. Like oftentimes when we think about our faith in public, when we think about how we're living life around others, like we get concerned, like, oh, like what if they ask me a question I don't know, Pastor? Or, or, or what, if, what, if they, what if they make fun of me? Listen, David is sure in this one thing. If I simply tell him, God, about how gracious you are, about how much you forgive sin, how much you actually love us, then he's certain that they will return to the Lord. And so we should be certain that when we tell others about Christ and God's love for humanity, that they will turn to God. Second, David promises to praise God. Look at verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. What's, what's David saying here in verse 14? What does he mean when he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness or, or bloodshed? What's he saying? Remember the context of this entire psalm. It says, David being confronted of his murder, premeditated murder of Uriah. So when he says bloodshed or blood guiltiness, this is, this is murder that he's asking for forgiveness for. And the guilt of murder. The NIV says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. Do you know what the, pre, the penalty for premeditated murder was under the law? It was death. It was death. He, David should have been put to death. Right? Other sins could be forgiven. Uh, if, if, if they were to bring an offering, uh, a sacrifice, an animal to the Lord, then their sins could be forgiven. But not for premeditated murder. You see, God had stipulated in Numbers 35, 33, it said blood or, or murder pollutes the land and no expiation, that is no atonement, no forgiveness, can be made for the land, for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You see, God required the death penalty for premeditated murder. David should have been put 
to death. But look what he does here. He, he throws himself on the mercy of God. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation. And amazingly, he does not die. Rather, he, he, he's forgiven. God proves in this moment to be the God of salvation. God proves in this moment that there is no sin outside of his forgiveness. And so David continues in verse 14 with this promise. He says, deliver me. And he goes on and said, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. When God delivers people from death, when, when, when God saves you and I, when God saves other people, a natural response of the heart is to sing aloud of God's deliverance. Like, think back to the moment. Like, perhaps for some of you, uh, you didn't grow up in church like myself. And so you remember probably a clear, definitive moment when you said, before this time I didn't know Christ, but, but after this time I know Christ and I've tried to follow him as best I could. But you think back to that, to that moment, that point, and you can say, that's the moment I trusted Christ. That's the moment I believed the gospel. Think for a moment. Put yourself back in that surroundings. For me, it was a little Baptist church of about 20 people. Uh, and I went in that night to, to, to a youth group because they said there was free pizza. Uh, praise God for free pizza. And so I went. Uh, but if, before I got on the church bus, if you had asked me, uh, Matt, are you, are you a Christian? Do you, do you love the Lord? I would have said, absolutely. But that night I went, youth group, ate pizza, and then, then they had a church service where a combined church service. Uh, and, and there, uh, I just remember at the beginning, like they sang hymns. Uh, which I, I love hymns. As a matter of fact, uh, in homeschooling right now, I'm trying to teach my kids uh, some good old-fashioned hymns. So we started with Amazing Grace. Um, and, and, but, that, I mean, this was like the church, again, 20 people, so you can imagine. Like, you guys think you uh, sing loudly. These 20 people were getting after the Lord that night. Listen, I'm not sure it was a joyful noise. You know what I'm saying? Like, you ever been in those church services where it's like, Y'all need some singing lessons, but they didn't care. They were getting after the Lord in these hymns that I had no idea about. And then a lady gets up, uh, you know, after the singing, just a time of testimony, and she's talking about uh, her, her husband who has cancer at the time, and she's just praising the Lord anyway. Like, for me, like, this is blowing my mind. And then a pastor got up, a preacher got up, and, uh, you know, he was much louder than I am. And, and, and there, all I remember, I don't even remember what the sermon was about. I just remember that he said uh, that, that God loves me and that, that there was a way of escape for me. Listen, during the sermon, like I sat there with my hands gripping the bottom of that old uncomfortable pew because I could feel for the first time my separation from God. It was like I could feel for the first time what David felt in the first nine verses. Shame, guilt, knowing the fact that I uh, did not have right standing with God. But when that pastor, when that preacher mentioned that there was a way of escape through Christ, he began to close out the sermon by having someone 
uh, come up and play either a guitar or piano. I can't, I can't remember. I can't remember last week. But uh, I remember uh, running to that altar. Like they had a time of altar call. Like, hey, if, like you feel that God is working in your life, come forward uh, and, and, and give your life to Christ. And I did. I made a beeline for the altar. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I didn't care. And so somebody came up beside me and says, do you know Jesus? And I said, no, but I, but I want to. And there we prayed together. And listen, it was like for the first time when I stood up from that altar, it was like I didn't have a weight on my back. Listen, before that night, I didn't realize I was carrying around weight. But man, like I could have... We got out from that altar, and then uh, they started singing another song. Again, I didn't know the song, but I opened the hymnal book up, and I just sang as loud as I could. As loud as I could. I didn't care. I finally understood what these other 20 people were doing in that moment when they don't know how to sing, they don't know what proper pitch is, and yet they love the Lord anyways. Listen, the proper response when God saves a person is to sing aloud. This is why over and over again, I tell you guys to sing. Like, like when we're up here, this isn't a show, right? Like we don't just come and like watch these performers. Like, I don't know if you've seen uh, the people who make up this, uh, this band up here. Uh, some of them are really good. The rest of us aren't that good. So if you're coming to watch a show, like, like you could probably go somewhere else for a much better show. But what we're doing when we're singing is inviting you in to sing with us. To sing of the greatness of our God. To sing about how much He truly loves us. To sing about the forgiveness that we enjoy. But notice, even this natural response of singing is beyond David's innate abilities. Look at verse 15. He says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You see, the Lord has to open his lips before his mouth can declare God's praise. Even singing aloud of God's deliverance is a gift from God. When the Lord opens his lips, his mouth will declare God's praise. Not just once, but continually. Listen, I don't care if you're 50 years in your Christian walk or five years in your Christian walk or five minutes in your Christian walk. We sing continually. God's praise. David's life will be transformed to always praising God. Transformed from self-centeredness to praising God. Transformed from living for himself to living for God. And so David promises to do three things. First, to teach other sinners about God's mercy and his ways. Second, to sing aloud of God's deliverance. And now third, in verse 16, he promises to sacrifice to God, not animals, but himself. For you have no delight in sacrifice, verse 16. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. David's sins here are too great to be paid for by merely sacrificing an animal. You see, murder wasn't the only thing that called for death in the, in the, in the law. You know what else was? Adultery. Adultery and murder were considered high-handed sins, and such sins could not be atoned for with animal sacrifice. For either of these sins, the death penalty was required. 
David deserves the death penalty not on one count, but on two counts, premeditated adultery and premeditated murder. Animal sacrifices cannot possibly pay for the penalty of his sins. But there is one sacrifice that David realizes perhaps can result in his own sins being forgiven. Look at verse 17. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, God will accept the sacrifice of a broken spirit. And this broken spirit is like a horse that's been broken. It no longer does whatever it desires or wants to do, but it obeys its master. And so for human sinners, it is the hostile stance against the divine will of God which has to be broken. The sacrifice consists in abandoning a sacrilegious attitude towards God. And so a broken spirit is one that begs God for a new and right feeling, a willing spirit, which can only be provided by God's Holy Spirit. Right, this broken spirit is similar to a contrite heart. Uh, There's a synonym thing going on here that David's doing in this poem. Verse 17 says, The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. A broken and contrite heart is one that gives up human self-will and surrenders itself completely to God. It shows genuine humility and profound contrition. In Isaiah, God says, This is the one to whom I will look, to the humble and contrite in spirit who trembles at my word. The sacrifice God will accept to forgive even the most heinous sins is a humble and contrite spirit. But notice that towards the end of this psalm, David does not any longer dwell on his sin. Right? He, he begins this, the psalm by pleading for God's mercy, listing his sins out extensively and pleading with God to, to blot them out, to take them away. He also asked God to create in him a clean heart and a right spirit, and God forgave him his grievous sins. Nathan said to David this, which he says to all those who will turn to him, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. So now David does not dwell on his sin anymore. It is gone. It's forgiven. The slate has been wiped clean. As a new creation, he can now teach others about the merciful God so that they too may return to him. He also intends to sing aloud of God's deliverance, praising God, and finally he promises to offer himself as a living sacrifice to God. There is a a, a movement in this psalm that if we don't read slowly, we'll miss. Right? Most of us probably have read Psalm 51 at, at a low point of our own lives. The church, the church historically is identifying with the opening half of this psalm. Like when we realize our own sins, we're like, ah, I just wish there was a passage I could go to that kind of speaks to the emotions that I'm feeling. And so we open up Psalm 51, but we, we forget that there's a progression in this psalm that by the end of this second half of this psalm, David's no longer dwelling on his sin anymore. He's no longer primarily preoccupied with his own shortcomings. He's no longer navel-gazing at himself. 
Rather, his response is now turned to God and who God is and what God uh, desires and what God wants in his life. David's concern now is to live to the glory of God. Notice how the psalm ends here. It ends with this prayer for Zion, verse 18 and 19. Do good design in your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Uh, scholars believe that these verses were probably added during Israel's exile to avoid misinterpretation of verse 16, right? Because David shows up and he says, you know what? You don't even want these sacrifices. So what they've done is they, they, they added uh, in, in the, the, the will of God, by the way, this isn't, uh, they're not tampering with God's word here, but rather uh, they, they, he, like, place yourself in their context here for a moment. God removed his people from the promised land. Does anybody remember why? Because their religion had become primarily a form of, of mere formality. They were simply going through the motions. They thought they could continue to sin as long as they simply brought the right animal sacrifice. Well, it's okay. You know, I sinned this week. Let's, let's give the dove. Right? Oh, I sinned this week. Let's bring a goat. Right? Like, they, like they didn't care about their sins. And so as punishment, God sent the Babylonian armies to Judah. And they tore down the walls of Jerusalem and they burned down the temple. Therefore, animal sacrifices were no longer even a possibility for them to simply go through the motions on. And so imagine being the people of God, reading this psalm in exile. They would identify with David's plea for mercy. They too had sinned and needed appeal to God's mercy. They too needed God to forgive their sins and wipe the slate clean. They too needed God's deliverance from exile. They longed to be restored to the promised land. Therefore they pleaded with God, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then they promise in verse 19, then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. How do you reconcile this with verse 16, which says you have no delight in sacrifice? In verse 19, the psalm promises you will delight in right sacrifices. And right sacrifices here are literally righteous sacrifices. These are sacrifices that are offered to God in the right spirit according to God's stipulations. Psalm 4, verse 5 admonishes Israel, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. The point of this psalm is simple. God will forgive and God has forgiven. Psalm 51 assured Israel that God, because of God's steadfast love and abundant mercy, he will forgive even the most heinous sins if people ask with a contrite heart. By instituting an elaborate system of laws for animal sacrifice in Old Testament, God gave expression to his desire to forgive people. Like, you understand that, right? Like, when God implemented, like, you read the book of Leviticus, it's a pretty bloody book, lots of sacrifices, lots of blood being sprinkled everywhere. Like, what's God doing in that? God is showing his people that he, he longs to forgive them. He, he desires to forgive people. People could pay for their sins in the Old Testament by simply offering animals. And all of this was to point to the one and only sacrifice of Jesus Christ. For in the fullness of time, God sent his son to pay for our sins. Jesus died to pay for the penalty 
of our sins. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken by God so that you and I would not be forsaken by God. When he breathed his last, Matthew 27, 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, Jesus' sacrificial death opened the way to God for all of us. No more animal sacrifices. Jesus paid the penalty for our sins once and for all. In his mercy, God provided a new way. His own son was the sin sacrifice. That's why John would tell, label Jesus in John 1, 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John also writes in this, is love that we loved God, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And again, if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, my little children. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, God reveals his abundant mercy and his steadfast love for us by sending his own son to die for our sins. If God was willing to blot out David's terrible sins, if God was willing to forgive Israel its grievous sins, how much more will God be willing to forgive our sins now? Now that Christ has offered his life for the sins of the world. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, God will forgive even your worst sins. If we but ask with a contrite heart. Father God, thank you. Lord, time and time again we find in the scriptures men and women who seem to have it all together and then out of nowhere we are blindsided. Here in this case with David's sins. David coming to grips with the fact that his heart is wicked and realizing he needs someone else to save him. Lord, all of these are to be pointers for us to realize that, that David's not the hero of the story. Adam wasn't the hero of the story. Moses wasn't the hero of the story. Abraham was not the hero of the story. Father, we believe this book tells one story with one hero in it. That's Jesus the Christ. And so, Father, Lord, David's sins were put away because they were placed on Christ. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to this reality that all of our sins, if we will but turn and trust and repent, all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been laid upon Christ. Lord, I pray that this would embolden us in our Christian walk. Lord, this week, as we find ourselves struggling to believe the gospel, or as we find ourselves struggling, wondering, 
Do you really love us? Or we're struggling and wondering, do we actually have right standing with you? Lord, I pray that we would remember Christ has died once and for all. Therefore, there is no more sacrifice needed. Lord, I pray that we would turn to you this morning with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.